0: Today at The New Indian, we have with us one of the biggest disruptors in socio-cultural sphere of the West and India. His first book, Breaking India, was an eye-opener about the forces that are hell-bent on breaking India. His latest book, Snakes in the Ganga, is yet another expose of the forces which are closer home. Well, you've guessed it right. That person who did all this and changed the narrative of India in the last decade, we have him with us, Mr. Rajiv Malhotra. Welcome to Reason, the new Indian's platform where we get to the reason behind the issues that concern you. Welcome, Mr. Malhotra.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: I'm going to begin this conversation with my observation of your whole body of work. It seems that through your books, you have written a dozen, almost a dozen books in the last decade. It seems that you are suggesting that the free world, the democratic world that we have known all along is not really free that everything is manipulated. The way we understand democracy, the way we understand our free institutions are not really free. Is that a correct assessment that I made of your work?
1: Well, you know, uh, actually, in many ways, absolutely correct. But I think nobody is free in the sense that everybody is a product of their own culture, their own conditioning. So uh, China, which is not a democracy, was also not free. Uh, The Islamic world is also not free. They have a certain point of view. And Indians have our point of view. So, I feel that every civilization has a claim to being universal, to having the universal truth. So, there is no, in my opinion, there is no truly God's eye view, Bhagwanka perspective, you know, which would be like the absolute. Because we are humans and we are conditioned. We are conditioned by our bodies, our history, our geography or where we've been colonized so we we've been conditioned by that
0: so i'm going to interrupt you there you said we've been colonized so did we really have our point of view when we say that all civilizations or all societies have their point of view did we have our point of view
1: so well, during the colonial era uh, we lost our point of view as far as government is uh, the, the ruling elite is concerned uh, but there were pe- there were segments which continued so the, which is why we we're able to revive some of that but prior to that, we had uh, a long history of a long tradition of internally developed points of view, plural, not just one point of view, but many points of view, which were in constant uh, discussion and discourse with e- interaction with each other, fought with each other, collaborated with each other, new ideas came, but ne- not from outside, but from within. So we've had a vibrant history of discourse of our own.
0: So at what point did we lose touch with our own point of view?
1: So uh, Was
0: it only colonization? Or as you revealed in Breaking India book, that even after we became free in 1947, we did not really bring our point of view to the world.
1: Well, firstly, colonization started with Islamic era. People wrongly think that colonization is just European colonization. There is a Islamic colonization. After all, they imposed their religion, they imposed their language, it became the official language. So, and they, you know, so much distortion happened uh, that we got colonized. For, uh, you know, you look at, uh, I am glad uh, to see women, Indian Hindu women who don't wear head cover. Uh, cover but this gungat, this ghungat idea of covering your head, which is very common in Punjab and in Rajasthan, you, you don't find it in the Vedas, you don't find it in the, in the, in the Ramayana Mahabharata. You don't find any description of a Devi which, with this kind of a Gungat. And you don't find it in mandirs today. You don't find, uh, only the TV production of Ramayan and Mahabharat has some women wearing that. So, that's an example of Islamic uh, colonization. The, and also a lot of the language, a lot of the Hindi that we speak uh, is actually Urduized and Arabized. A lot of words are from Islamic kind of… Persianized a Persianized. But the Islamic idea uh, is brought into those words. And we unconsciously use them, not knowing that we are talking about an Islamic concept. So we are, we are still colonized by Islam and we are still colonized by Europe. Those haven't gone away.
0: Well, you see, Nehru's idea of India was essentially that India is a mixture of societies, of cultures, because we've been you now saying that, you know, Islam was also colonization, that was also imperialism. But for a very long time, including our education, uh, educational institutions, we were taught that we are a beautiful amalgamation, a syncretic culture, which has risen out of all these influences, the East and the West, uh, whether it was Islam or Christianity, Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, Sikhism, we are this melting pot. But you were specifically saying that India had its own point of view, which was different from Islamic point of view or Christian point of
1: view? Yeah, I think the book, among all the books I have written, the book called Being Different discusses what is different and distinct about Indian civilization, like there is something very distinct about Islamic civilization, like there is something very distinct about judeo Christianity, Uh, like there is something very distinct about the Western secular point of view which is of Greek origin. So, there are civilizations with internal cohesiveness and internal consistency and Indian civilization has had that. Including the Buddhist side, including all the different darshanas, there is a common corpus which is very distinctly Indian. There are certain ideas which are very distinctly Indian. For instance, the nature of the self, the nature of reincarnation, the idea of karma, you will find in every Indian system. There is no, it is in Sikhism, it is in Jainism, it is in Buddhism, it is in all the Hindu stuff. So, the idea of the, that the there is this causation which we call karma, And this causation goes beyond one life to the next life to the next life. Uh, And that's the undercurrent of everything that we are experiencing. Everything that happens is the effect of a prior cause. And everything that you do now is a cause for a future effect. This is so basically Indian. It is not found in the Abrahamic traditions, this kind of a thing. So, uh, I would say if if you look for what is distinctly Indian, this book being different I have, Gets into the whole book is a discussion on what is distinctly Indian and
0: what is different about it. All right, so coming to your latest book, my impression is that in the first book you took on the West, uh, the Western uh, forces who were running or who were influencing the Dravidian movement and the Dalit movement. And in this book you are actually calling out the biggest. Uh, academic institution, the most premier institution in the world, that is Harvard University. And you are basically saying that they are mapping critical uh, race theory on India's caste. I want to understand, is caste not a reality in India? I am being the devil's advocate here.
1: Yeah, caste is a reality in India, but that doesn't mean that you can map it to race. I mean, it's like somebody has the flu. But he, that doesn't mean he has COVID. Or somebody has disease X doesn't mean he has disease Y. I am not calling these things diseases. I am saying caste is a certain social order which has benefits and which has problems. And there is caste abuse, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that it is racism per se. Race is a separate thing with its own uh, history. So, in the case of race, American racism, people blacks were brought from another continent. In the case of Dalits, they were not brought from another continent. They are part of us. So, they are not, not a different race. They have intermingled with us. Uh, we're also, in the case of uh, the, the whole minority, t- taking Indian minorities and equating them with sort of blacks, you know, is, is incorrect. Because blacks never came as conquerors who ruled over the whites. They didn't come and establish a, like a Mughal empire or a British empire. Here, the minorities are the successors to uh, empires invaders who came and invaded and set up their empires. And so it's not the fault of today's Muslims or today's Christians that some people people in the past used those religions in a negative way to come and oppress us. But the history is that th- today's minorities are in- intellectually aligned, emotionally aligned with conquerors of the past. So that the equivalent thing would be if blacks in America had come as conquerors and, and invaded and, and established a huge black empire. And now today there would be minorities uh, feeling that they are, uh, you know, oppressed or something like that. The history of Indian minorities and Indian caste is very different from American racism. So you just cannot equate them. This does not mean we don't have problems. We have problems. But so does every civilization have problems.
0: But you see, it's so appealing for uh, younger generation to relate with the oppressed communities or oppressed groups. In fact, there's a book, uh, if I remember it correctly, Benedict Anderson, who wrote a book called Imagine, Imagine communities. Community. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's easy <clears throat> to see similarity. It's easy to see connection when you have societies who are oppressed because of either their color or their caste, even if their history or even if their context are different isn't it how do you counter this whole idea because it is so it's so easy for any person who is humane and who has compassion in his heart to feel that sympathy for or similarity with these societies yeah i
1: think we need to have sympathy we need to absolutely do a lot for those who are oppressed everywhere in the world but you know you don't solve a problem by oversimplifying it you don't solve a problem with reductionism it's a reductionism to take every, every uh, instance of oppressed and project your own white, black American idea onto that. That's what's currently happening. The American uh, theory of race, uh, because America has had a lot of this problem, is being superimposed on every culture wherever they go and find somebody oppressed, they just put it on top of that. I am opposed to that. That doesn't mean I don't want op- the oppressed people to have rights. I don't, it doesn't mean I don't want the oppressed people to r- r- rise and, you know, overthrow the oppressor. That is all fine. But you need to diagnose each situation accurately on its own terms to oversimplify, to reduce the problem onto some something, you know, which the dominant culture sees. I call it western universalism. Western universalism means superimposing the western grid the Western template onto everybody else, and, and the Western history, the Western society, social structure finding equivalence everywhere else. It's a, it's a case of mistranslation of words and mapping of ideas onto the Western template. That's very good if you're the colonizer and you're a Westerner and you want to understand people on your terms, and then you want to re educate them on your terms, and they lose a sense of history, they lose a sense of who they are. Uh, They have to be, they have to, they become second class whites, they become second class Westerners because they've lost their own sense of history. So it's a horrible thing that the West has done to many people in the world.
0: There are two questions I have in mind. One, don't you think that English language has an advantage over other languages? And that is why perhaps scholarship (laughs) is becoming lazy because we, for example, India is a a product of colonial education, we received English language, we received it from the West. Of course, the West would like to impose their template on every other uh, democracy or even the non, on non-democratic countries, wherever the language is not a barrier. So, that is one. That language, is language a problem? Is it the reason that scholars are just imitating the West? That's one. Second is the way academic scholarship is also tied to, for example, capital, the kind of fellowships that we receive. In fact, you've written a lot about it in your book, but I want you to explain to our audience that there is an incentive provided by the West that our scholars are not creating anything original and they're just imitating lock, stock and barrel whatever the West is producing.
1: I think this is particularly serious in liberal arts. It's not as serious in studies in mathematics or physics or medicine and, you know, those kinds. STEM education is more neutral towards culture, relatively more neutral because you have objective reference points. But in the case of uh, liberal arts, basically, ultimately it boils down to a consensus of opinions. There is no objective Reality that you can look at. You know, it's a point of view. It all boils down to particular points of view. So, the West being the dominant, the West being the powerful people, it's their view that prevails most of the time. So, I, I the, partly the language issue that you mentioned already and partly the issue that they control the funding. The prestigious journals are in the West or controlled by the West. Uh, the prestigious committees.
0: So, in a way what you are saying is that India or for that matter the rest of the world also, which is non-West, has failed in scholarship, has failed in incentivizing scholarship. Not has true. failed Not in bringing out their own
1: Not true universally. The Chinese have done a very good job. The Chinese are in fact very emphatic. The Chinese have… Co- lot so India of India has failed. India has failed. The Chinese have a lot of collaborations with, you know, US Ivy Leagues for STEM. And they have been discontinuing the collaborations for liberal arts, things like social justice they don't want. They don't want to, they don't want their students to learn about China and its history and its society through Harvard. They just don't want that. Singapore discontinued a major collaboration with Yale University on the same basis. On the basis that we don't need you to teach us these kind of things about our social structure. So when you look at certain cultures, Singapore is a very tiny country as an example that pushed back. China is a major country pushed back. You will find this sort of… Why
0: has India failed?
1: India has failed because the Indians are sold out. Indians are sold out from the billionaires down to the average worker who is out looking for his next uh, free trip to… For the average person uh, working at the working level, they are looking for a fellowship. They are looking to be sent to a nice university and and, uh, come back with some accolades. Uh, that they can use to boost their career because the West has done a very good job of understanding Indian psychology. Indians are very ambitious, so Indians are easy to buy out. So, you, so if you are a western educa- uh, Western university, you can, for a rather, relatively small budget, you can buy a large number of Indians to come and do all the dirty work for you. And they will make very good, just like in IT, we have tech workers, we also have in the humanities, tech, uh, so, uh, liberal arts workers who are producing all this spin. It's being produced by Indian workers. So, Indians are into that and at the very high level you have billionaires who would rather be on some board or committee in Harvard and uh, have their kids go to Harvard and show off that we are the jet set global types now. Uh, That is the Indian inferiority complex. Even when you are a billionaire, you have an inferiority complex. Because rather than telling Harvard about my culture, they are listening to Harvard to tell us about ourselves. Very different from the Chinese. I have noticed the Chinese philanthropists are very demanding that their culture has to be respected. They are aligned with their with their government. They have a, a cohesive point of view that when we teach about China, this is what we teach. The Chinese funded chairs in the United States don't want to talk about Tian- Tiananmen Square, about Tibet. They don't want to talk about the Uyghurs.
0: Is it because China has the economic might? They have <clears throat> The West actually eating out of their hands?
1: Not, no, because it started even earlier. These kind of things started 25 years ago. I used to do a comparison of China and India at Harvard, 20, 25 years ago, when China was not that great. And even at that time, Harvard did not treat them. The Harvard wouldn't bring Tibetan movement in the United States. Used to complain that if we go to Harvard, places like Harvard, we're not going to be given a seat at the table. They're not interested in listening to us. If we sit in the audience, in the audience and raise our hand, they won't acknowledge. If we raise our voice, they'll throw us out.
0: So why do you think the West has more respect or deference to China and not to India?
1: It's the Chinese who demanded that. It's the Chinese who have self-esteem and and, and courage and confidence. Indians lack that. So I think the problem would go away as far as the billionaire-funded problems in Harvard that we talk about in this book. If the billionaires got together or two or three of them got together, And just wrote to the Harvard president saying, we don't want our name and our money to be associated with things that are contrary to our point of view within India. And we do have problems, but so do you. And you can't solve our problems, you haven't even solved your own problems in the United States. So instead of exporting your solutions to us and your policies towards us, you should focus on your social problems. We're focusing on our social problems. This is what they should do.
0: So, you are saying that even weak states, even uh, states which are not huge economies or strong economies can demand to yes. have their, their own cultural identity or social identity or historical identity? Yes.
1: I mean, what would happen? The US is not going to send an army here to invade you if you say we are not going to allow uh, American policies in India. But, you know, if you look at India, it's not just academic invasion. Niti Ayog and all the ministries love hiring American consultants, mm-hmm. Deloitte and Touche, KPMG, uh, Price Waterhouse and Cooper, Delo- you know all of these kind of Ernst and Young, McKinsey, and many many others. India is a major client for them, and the reason it's a client is because the, you know when they want a policy, whether it's public health, whether it's about water, whether it's about you know uh, economy or you know uh, so so all of that, including social justice, uh, they are. Turning to these western consultants who think it's a great opportunity for them. And these western consultants hire Indians, so they look like us, but they are, they are working for the American establishment. And so they are given marching orders on what the points of view have to be. A large part of India's policy think tanks, including government mechanisms like the and Yoga and, and uh, ministries are taking orders, not orders, it's a too strong a word, but let's say they're being inspired by American ideas.
0: Is this a problem which is of this government or uh, the corporations uh, the contemporary co- corporations or has this been a problem of overall Indian society since independence or even before that?
1: The latter I would say this it's not this government because many of these problems started before 2014 and they just gotten worse. You,
0: Can we specify a period when it started? What started this and who was really responsible? Would you pin blame on the political leadership or the uh, public sector? I would say Rajiv sector? Gandhi.
1: I think Indira Gandhi was very suspicious of Americans. Indira Gandhi would face Nixon and give him a good run for his money. And she didn't want those guys. She, she got rid of Ford Foundation, you know. she. Ford foundation to wind up and go because she felt there was too much CIA, too much of this kind of involvement. She did not want meddling. If you really want to understand how to deal with Americans, you should look at Indira Gandhi. Because that's not Modi, that's Indira Gandhi. So, they cannot blame Hindutva for that. Indira Gandhi was very tough uh, on the Americans uh, for this very reason. Uh, now, I don't support her on many things. You know, she, did, she was not into enough free enterprise to control freak and all that stuff. That's bad. But in terms of foreign policy towards uh, United States, he was pretty tough on that. And some of it has to do with the other country, whether they are strong. Because the United States respects strong. I mean, they respect, uh, you know, there was a time when somebody did a comparison between India and Pakistan. Of course, that was way back during Ayub Khan's time. And uh, this was a FBI report on, you know, who do you trust more, Nehru or Ayub Khan? and they said this nehru you know he talks this way then he talks that way then he's contradicting he's mixed up he's muddled he's weak but ayub khan whether you agree with him or not he's firm he stands straight he's tall he's a tough guy and you can you, he's a man of his word so we can rely on him this kind of an idea so they have a uh, the west has this idea that uh, assertiveness and being very clear clear concrete consistent Is equality
0: well if that was true then they should have uh, been very respectful of Prime Minister Modi because Prime Minister Modi is assertive He, he stands up for India but then if you look at the American media if you look at American academia as your book reveals and it is a must read because it reveals how they have actually penetrated every institution in India and they are influencing thinking to India's harm yes so, Modi. why is there no…
1: So, Modi is in fact respected a lot more than any prior prime minister in certain segments of the United States. The United States is also a complex country. It is not just one. I would say the military people want would rather have an alliance with Modi than with some Indira Gandhi, Nehru, those kind of people. They are not very, they go a bit here, a bit there and not assertive and straightforward. Uh, even though Shankar says we will not side with you on every issue. But still they respect that because they respect that assertiveness. It also has been, there has been an Indian wokeism type of thing going on for a long time. The whole Indian left has been breeding similar ideas in, for a long time. So, the recent uh, assaults on Modi, you know, are a very different thing. And this is not America in its traditional, typical strength. This is not the traditional America. This is a very wokist America that is now emerging. And wokeism is a fringe, it used to be a fringe element of the democratic party which has become mainstream, which has taken over power.
0: So, what you are essentially saying is America has respect for Islamic civilization, it has respect for the Chinese civilization, it has respect for every civilization other than Indian.
1: Not every, but I would say among the major civilizations, uh, India is in the worst shape. Indian civilization is in the worst shape. Uh, And this is, Indians need to understand that. Now, when you look at, Hopeless culture ministry. You look at the Indian consulates and Indian embassies and you look at the Indian Council of Cultural Relations which is part of the Ministry of External Affairs, completely useless. I I mean, I am terribly sorry to have to say that. But they are just not competent. They just don't know their job. They have no idea how to project Indian civilization in the foreign world. They think it is about some kind of you know, Kawali night or some dance performance or some Bollywood evening or food and all that stuff. But the real deep civilizational issues that we are talking about, the Indian Indian government with all its machinery has really done nothing. Not only in the foreign countries, but even in India. Look at the NCRT books, they have not been changed. Look at the teaching, the, the selection of uh, Uh, UPSC of the administrative people, the exam is still the same. The people who are coaching, they are still teaching Romila Thapar and you have to read the Hindu and you have to read all those kind of, you know, extreme leftist weird ideas about India to get into the IS. The bureaucracy is as, uh, you know, kind of uh, mixed up about the Hindu origins, Hindu roots as the previous bureaucracy was. The HRD ministry hasn't done a darn thing. They keep talking about these things.
0: We are living in what they, the rest of the world is calling the Hindutva period of India. We have a Hindutva government and we also claim to have this very strong right-wing ecosystem on social media, on media, elsewhere. This is all very contradictory. If what you are saying is correct, then probably we we do not have a Hindutva government
1: well we have a hindutva government in the sense that they have used hindutva to get votes so it's a government politically during election time yeah they use all that and they have done emotionally it, it's very good work that to to rebuild ayodhya i'm fully for it and to make some legal changes to the article 370 and the caa and all of that is excellent so much more needs to be done and maybe it'll take another 10 years 20 years 50 years but What I am saying is in parallel, things could have been done on the civilizational front, certainly on the education front, certainly in terms of ICCR being completely re-engineered to project a different kind of India, training our diplomats on on these matters. There are areas like that which have not been done.
0: Do you think that essentially we need a major reform within the bureaucratic uh, selection, within bureaucracy and also I want to understand. At some point, do you think Indians are just not even aware about who they are?
1: Well, these are two different things. Yes. One is about bureaucracy. Um, and, yes. I, and I certainly think that, yes, bureaucracy has to be… Bureaucracy hasn't been touched by Modi. In fact, if anything, the PM office has become huge, it's about a thousand people, unprecedented ever. So, he centralized the bureaucracy, given them more power. And so, that's, I think, the idea of reforming bureaucracy the way you select them and the, their values and what they have to in, incorporate, it, it hasn't happened. Maybe it's happening very slowly. The other thing is Indians are not even aware of who we are. It's a it's a different thing. It's not yeah. just bureaucracy area. It's about yeah. families, 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 media, social media. Uh, the gurus are teaching uh, Advaita, Vedanta and all. And I am an Advaiti and I have respect for that. But they are not teaching the Kshatriyata. They are not teaching the Intellectual kshatriyata, which is which is the message of the Mahabharata. So they are not teaching how to do purva paksha of others, which means you study others and you know to understand them. That's a tradition that India excelled in. Always understand who
0: should be doing this if not if not the political leadership, if not the bureaucracy, if not the academia and the media.
1: The public systems that we are talking about today uh, were not there. And, but the gurus and the families were enough to continue the traditions within generation, generation, generations. That hasn't happened. Now, I can see families breaking down is a whole issue by itself. But gurus are in very rich. They have, they are multinationals. They've got the technology. They've got millions of followers. Uh, they, 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 there is no excuse why the gurus should stick to just teaching you meditation and yoga. Why haven't they been able to take, uh, take, uh, put together the Indian, the Vedic liberal arts university. Why isn't there? Like we have Harvard is the center of liberal arts and from there it goes all over the world. And that's an American view of liberal arts.
0: Even if let's say there was uh, somebody, one of the gurus came up and he built an institution. But how do you tackle with the problem of what you pointed out yourself and you have pointed it out in your book to Scholarship which is just imitating the West.
1: In this book, I did a, a review of something concerning the United States in the in chapter 1, which many Americans have said, this is so good, you should write a whole book on this only. They said I should write a book called Breaking America. Because I've… I've
0: I was going to come to
1: I, that. I, I've looked at, so I've looked at what's going on in America before its export to India, before talking about how it's being exported to India. Uh, how it's being mapped onto India. I'm talking about what's the history of this in America itself. And they found this to be a very good, comprehensive, unique uh, insight into what has happened in the United States. Now, that's rigor. And Indians, most of them don't want to know all that. They, they just want to know, who do we go after? Who do we shout against? Uh, which slogan? Which petition? Is this guy good or bad? And do we put out a tweet against him? This is all reactive and very superficial. And these are people who don't have much attention span. They have few seconds attention span here and there. So, you know, I as an author, I am always being told that, you know, what you should do is just uh, cater to a few seconds here and there because nobody has much attention span. So, this is a problem uh, that has happened to our society. I call this uh, moronization of the masses, means turn them into morons. In my Dumbing down. In my artificial intelligence book, I call it the moronization of the masses which means the masses are going with the flow of where to go on a holiday. The social media, the ad will tell you what to eat, you know, who to yeah. vote for. And now the artificial intelligence algorithms are driving this because you don't even need human beings. You don't need human beings to drive it. Some people have made a policy and put it into these algorithms. The algorithms are driving the media. And so our people are extremely vulnerable to that.
0: India has been open to all this. And you're saying that we are vulnerable. We have... People who are gullible, people who are not informed, people who do not have any of these skills or critical thinking, is democracy good for India?
1: So, you know, if you look at democracy, it says that one vote of a completely incompetent, uneducated, uninformed person who just got opinions is the same as the vote of a very well-informed person on that subject matter. Now, in medicine, you wouldn't go to a hospital and say that the way to do surgery on this patient, a complex surgery, has to be a democratic vote and everybody is going to have an equal say. What you will, what you would rather have is that the surgeons who are experienced have more say. It's the it's the expert subject matter expert who decides, and it's not a democracy that decides. You know how to treat this patient. If you go to a factory or if you go to a company. Uh, they, the company is not run on a democracy. They don't ask all the employees what to do. The policy is not made based on a democracy. Policy is made by a few people who are subject matter experts. If you look at a cricket team, it is not that the, the cricket team sits and uh, votes, what do we do next? I mean, the captain is more knowledgeable. He's put in there to make decisions and he makes decisions. He may consult people when he wants to, but it is his decision. When you look at a military, a military doesn't choose its next move by by taking a poll of all the soldiers. Nobody in any sphere uh, uses democratic method to make decisions. So, why is it that the way to run a country has to be democratic? What What is the reason that people think that giving all sorts of people equal rights to vote will produce better policy? I don't think that's necessarily the case.
0: So, you are advocating dictatorship? No,
1: I didn't say that either.
0: So, what are we really… Offering to ourselves, if not democracy? What's the well, alternative? Well, I
1: think there should be some uh, weightage given to uh, education, people who are educated, some weightage given to that. I am not saying that there should be the educated elite who have the right to vote and others don't have any right to vote because then you will have an exploitation. That's another problem. You will have a dictatorship of the elite, which is also not a good idea. But if you look at the Chinese model, the communist part, the PLA, the Communist and the Communist Party of China—they have about ninety million uh, members. That's a lot. Ninety million members, uh, maybe a little less than one uh, one third of the co- one tenth of the country. But if you look at the adult population, it's more like you know one fourth of the population. It's a, a one fourth or one one fifth of the population. So uh, it's not a trivial number of people, is what I'm saying. It's a very large percentage of the adult population. So in a v- and so they vote internally. The the Communist Party. Is a democratic party within itself? It is the it is a one-party rule. That the country is run as a dictatorship of the Communist Party, no doubt. Second party, third party is not allowed. But within the Communist Party, it's a, it's elected. Now uh, President Xi has to be voted. He has to get a third term, which he probably will. But there has to be an election for that. So this is system which is not a full democracy, nor is it a one-man dictatorship. It's not a one-man dictatorship like in but North Korea.
0: Xi Jinping has chosen himself to be president for. No, but he has the to get this.
1: He has to get this vote.
0: But it, once you are in power, isn't it easier to then control? Yes.
1: In India, aren't you? Don't you feel that there's so much money, time, energy, uh, uh, you know, wasted on just elections all the time, and everything is driven by what's the next election? When you talk, when I come into Delhi and talk to people, they are all are distracted by. They have been told by the party, whichever party it is, to go for this campaign and that valley and this yatra, or whatever. So, rather than ruling the country, they are all the time just chasing elections. Democracy has serious flaws, definitely. Maybe they, may, they should consider something like the presidential system. So, it, so rather than parliamentary. So, somebody who is… The elect-
0: presidential system in the US is also leading uh, to breaking America forces. No, but
1: that's not the presidential system. I think it's the, it, it, it's a particular kind of presidential people. I mean, I think the United States has lost the integrity which the president, I think Trump really made some terrible things. In fact, but things got sorted out. Things in fact, got sorted till
0: 1960s, out. they had limited democracy.
1: Well, I mean, the, There the, were
0: sections the, who did not have vote.
1: Yes. Yes, section that didn't have vote. But you know, United States has, figured it out, have worked out. If you really look at in the early, uh, early years, early few decades after the 1776 independence, there was tremendous chaos. I mean, there was violence. I mean, there were there were people in the White House doing all kind of weird things. Just like Trump, pretty much. This has happened before. But things got sorted out. There is some way to sort it out. I, so,
0: you are essentially saying the entire democratic world, not just India, but America and Europe and UK, they need to review, revisit the model of democracy that yeah, is prevalent yeah, at the yeah. moment.
1: What kept America together is before the influx of uh, a lot of Islamic influence, a lot of uh, non-Judaic Christian influence, because it, that kept them together. You know, that that Judaic Christian thing was that you could be this party or that party, but I, at the end of the day, we are together, we are all biblical people and we have this. That was a, the, their grand narrative that gave them some kind of a unity of purpose long term. This is what's been broken. This has now been broken because of a huge influx of contrarian views. Postmodernism has come in. Uh, Critical
0: and race theory, all postmodernism, of these, yeah. yes.
1: And these are, these are the threats rather than the presidential system. It is these that are the threats at the social level.
0: But these, you think that these threats will disappear In a different form of democracy, what you're saying is in a limited form of democracy. For Mm -hmm. example, you think the Hindu-Muslim fault line or the caste fault line will disappear in a limited democracy? We
1: should certainly find, in India's case, we certainly find a way to have less frequent elections. That would be a good first step.
0: And probably also somehow figure out how do you contain this identity politics, which is now being repackaged as critical race theory, critical caste theory, etc, etc. But it's really they're all going back to the identity politics because there's a wood bank.
1: The problem in, is that individuals have been grouped into collective identity organizations, which has been there always in the world. People are tribes or jatis or Races or religious groups groups have existed. Now these groups have been. in Marxism says they are the oppressors and oppressed. So you got to you are the oppressed, and we got to tell you who's the oppressor, and we'll teach you how who it is, and you have to fight them. And then then these these oppressed people are combining with other oppressed people into global unions, global unity. So there's a globalization of oppressed people, and that's what critical race theory and critical caste theory are. That you try and bring together all the so-called Oppressed people and they have to fight all the structures that exist, including the structures of your nation state and your religion and your family structure. All of that has to be rejected because that was built by the oppressors. Everything in society was built by the dominant people. They are the ones who came up with these structures, and these dominant peoples are oppressors. And therefore, the we, the oppressed, must get out of every single thing. That's why LGBTQ has been brought into critical race theory because. They are very useful to dismantle family structures. And family structures are a way that old oppressiveness is transmitted to the next generation. Values that are being transmitted, a Hindu parent will transmit Hindu values and therefore the oppression continues. And you have to break that, which means you have to break the family system. So really a breakdown of society across the board is being called for.
0: So is it because that uh, the West... Western civilization is actually declining. And while they are declining, they are trying to create chaos across the world.
1: Well, I think the Western is trying to keep their hegemony like you would expect. And uh, uh, the the strength of the United States all along has been technology. The United States, has had all these problems, but they always invented some big new thing. I mean, just imagine 100 years ago, the airline aircraft was invented. Now this is big industry. The automobile industry started huge. You know, all kind of things one after the other. Then later on, the whole television industry then the computer revolution then the internet. Now we're talking about, you know, metaverse and, you know, all kinds of things that will be implanted in you and control your thoughts and all that. So, these are futuristic kind of industries. So, the United States has always been able to invent, its entrepreneurs have been able to invent industries of the future that create trillion, multi-trillion dollar economies all over the world. And so because they invented, they have that advantage. So with that, they've been able to stay ahead in weapons. Weapons require these technologies. And if you are ahead technologically, you can have better weapons. And if you have better weapons, then you you can control the world. And this also gives them a financial advantage. And therefore, they they can have the dollar being the reserve currency of the world. So weapons and reserve currency as the dollar, have kept the United States very powerful. So, the question is, the real questions are whether cryptocurrency will dismantle the dollar and whether China will dismantle the technological advantage because they are into quantum computing, they are into AI. These are the cutting edge technologies of the future. So, the issue it's partly a crypto issue that could threaten and partly a China technology issue. They, they have borrowed some technologies, licensed some, stolen. But whatever it is they have done, they have gotten, gotten way out. You know, very quickly. So the 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 U.S. has finally realized the China game, which it hadn't. Only last two three years, they realized it. The amount of Chinese infiltration into Harvard is absolutely amazing. Places like Harvard, and so now the FBI has arrested some people in Harvard because they were, you know, in bed with the Chinese Communist Party and so on. But still, not enough. Still on the surface. So the U.S. problems are of that kind. I would say it's not that some. President is corrupt or whatever. So, you are
0: saying that they would uh, be still trying to create chaos because they want to uh, prevail as a hegemon uh, and uh, also that, you know, China is a threat.
1: So, if you read the conclusion of this book, I will give you my, but I want people to read the conclusion. My I have a very uh, different kind of conclusion on uh, what is currently happening. I call it the new world disorder. It is not the new world order. It is the new world disorder. Mm -hmm. Uh, but why why would all the billionaires and trillionaires want to create a dismantle the very structures that made them billionaires Mm -hmm. why would they want to dismantle uh, capitalism using wokeism when capitalism is what made them rich Mm -hmm. right so i answer it in the conclusion
0: okay on that note i will uh, say thank you to you for this fascinating conversation i will uh, read the conclusion and i think uh This is a point of curiosity for audience also. They will certainly buy uh, snakes in the Ganga and read out the conclusion for themselves. Thank you so much. Can I
1: say one more thing? Yes. Don't be scared that the book is fat and therefore takes too much time to read. I'll tell you how to read it. Uh, You need to read 100 pages and you know everything uh, except for all the details and quotes and references. Uh, You read the introduction okay, and that's 30-40 pages. And then there are 22 chapters. But each has a one-page overview. It's like the executive summary that tells you all the gist of what's written in that chapter. Sometimes there's two pages, sometimes it's one page. And then you, there's a conclusion chapter. So, if you take the introduction chapter, conclusion chapter and in between just one one-page overview, less than 100 pages, you will know what the book is about. And that you could do in a few hours quickly. Uh, it's easy English. English is easy. Nice diagrams, flow diagrams, images. You know, after you've got this idea from reading the intro and the, and the overviews and the conclusion, then you can dive deeper wherever you want to. So, if you want to dive into why are the IITs being uh, attacked by Harvard and what is our response to it, there's one chapter on that. If you want to look at what is Anand Mahindra doing at Harvard that we think is troublesome, there's one chapter only on Anand Mahindra. There is another chapter on Lakshmi Mittal at Harvard. There is another chapter on Ajay Piramal at Harvard. There is another chapter on Azeem Premji's foundation and what they are doing with Wokeism. There is another chapter on Ashoka University. There is another chapter on God Rage. So, the chapters are independent, little little mini books and you can read the ones you like. And you don't have to read the rest of it. And you don't need to read this in any sequence. So, that's kind of uh, uh, to make people less scared of the size of the book.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much.